A little over eight years ago, I had one of the best days of my life. It was the day that I had the privilege of marrying my wife. Now, in a wedding, there's various traditions that we follow. There's lots of things that we do. But one of those traditions is the tradition of having a best man. Now, at my wedding, my best man was my oldest brother, David. Some of you uh, may remember David. Uh, He actually preached at our church here back in March. So my brother was my best man. Now, in his role of best man, David had numerous things that he did for me that probably don't officially fall under the title or the job description that we would think of as best man. For example, the day before the wedding, my brother spent a good portion of his day, which was actually his birthday, building a doorway in the middle of a field. And he did that So that the moment that my bride was going to be revealed in all of her beauty, that there would be this triumphal entry that we could open these doors in the middle of the field for her to walk through. The day of the wedding, my brother helped set up chairs and decorations and fix various small issues because it was an outdoor wedding and it had rained that morning. So we were scrambling to do those things and so he woke up early to help out doing that. After the wedding, he gave a speech, speaking of my qualities and merits. It was a very short speech. But here's what, I, what really showed that I trusted my brother, because after the wedding, while Hannah and I were taking pictures for our photo album, I gave to my brother the reservation to my hotel room and our suitcases so that he could take all of those things and put them in the hotel room, things that I wouldn't need to worry about and all thinking about all the other stuff, he would take care of that for me. Now, giving someone that kind of opportunity to prank you, to unpack your suitcase, to do all kinds of things was a huge opportunity, but I trusted my brother and he did it. Now, All of those different roles that he did, very few of them, if you were to read a handbook of, okay, you know, if you're asked to be a best man, some of you might go and look online, what are the responsibilities of the best man? What am I supposed to do? You're not going to find those things in that list. But my brother did them because he understood what his main role was. His job was to make me shine. He wanted to make me great in the eyes of my bride. My brother understood and joyfully fulfilled his role. Imagine, though, what it would be like if my best man misunderstood or refused his role. Imagine if the best man looked at his title and thought that must mean he was supposed to be the best man at the wedding. So he would refuse to do anything that he saw as beneath his station. He would take every opportunity to lift himself up in the eyes of everyone in attendance. Maybe as Hannah began her walk down the aisle and passed through the doors that he had made, he might comment to everyone, hmm, good quality workmanship right there. I wonder who made those doors. And calling all attention to himself. What if in the speech, instead of talking about the the bridegroom, he took the opportunity to tell everyone how great he was? 
Now, all of those things would be annoying in the least and maybe quite disrupting. But imagine if the best man misunderstood and refused his role to the point of attempting to seduce the bride. Instead of being an ally and support for the groom, he would become the groom's enemy and competitor as he tried to steal what was not his. Those things would be the opposite of the role of the best man. If we encountered a best man like that, the question we would ask is what kind of best man would be so arrogant? What kind of best man would seek all the glory? What kind of best man would attempt to seduce the groom's bride? Unfortunately, the answer is often a best man like me, a best man like you. The unfortunate reality is that all of us at one time or another have been the unfaithful best man. Jesus is the bridegroom of heaven. Our role in everything is to glorify and magnify him. We are meant to make him what the bride longs for. The bride is supposed to be ready for him. But how often do we misunderstand and refuse our role? How often, instead of elevating Jesus, do we elevate ourselves? How often, instead of pointing to Jesus as the Savior, do we see ourselves as the Savior? How often do we attempt to seduce his bride to follow us instead of wait for him? In our passage this morning, we're going to see the example of a man who understood and joyfully fulfilled his role. John the Baptist completed his task even as those around him tempted him to seduce the groom's bride. But their temptation was fruitless because John knew his purpose and accepted it with joy. Our big idea this morning is this. Jesus must increase and I must decrease because he is the Savior and I am not. Jesus must increase and I must decrease because he is the Savior and I am not. Our passage this morning is divided into three separate paragraphs. The first paragraph gives us the setting. When and where did this happen? The second paragraph gives us the scene. What happened? The third paragraph is going to give us the support or explanation. Why did it happen? So with that being said, let's jump into John 3.22 and look at the setting. John 3.22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. First thing we see in the setting is that this is after Jesus' time in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples have left Jerusalem and they've gone into the countryside and they go out in order to baptize. We also see that John the Baptist was in the same general area and both he and Jesus are, doing, are baptizing people. Now, we do know from John 4, where we're going to be next week, that Jesus himself wasn't the one that was baptizing, but his disciples who were with him were baptizing. 
But the passage tells us the reason that they are in these specific locations is because of the abundance of water, which, as a Baptist, I will point out, is because that's what baptism requires, an abundance of water. And all the Baptists said, amen. (laughs) Now, all of this happened before John the Baptist was imprisoned and later beheaded. That's the setting that we have. We have two of these great men in close proximity. Both of them are doing the work of God. John and Jesus are here. But now there's going to be some tension. Look at what happens. Look at the scene, looking at verses, starting with verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. In verse 25, there's this discussion between John's disciples and a Jew. We really don't know that much about what this discussion is about. It tells us that it's about purification, but we still don't know the fullness of the argument. The only other time that John talks about purification, uses this word, is when we were back in chapter 2, when we talked about Jesus turning the water into wine, and he did it using the water from the jars of purification. It might be that this Jew has seen Jesus baptizing And he's coming to John and his disciples, knowing that they also baptize, and says, what's going on? Which is the the baptism that actually purifies? Which is the one that causes us to to see that we need to repent, that there is dirtiness that needs to be cleaned? That might be the argument we really don't know. But for whatever reason, they have this discussion. And out of this discussion, the disciples, John's disciples, go to John and they make a statement. They come to him and say, Rabbi, a couple weeks ago we saw that this this term, it's a term of respect. They are addressing John as their teacher. They tell him, he who was with you across the Jordan. Well, who are they talking about? They are talking about when Jesus came to John, which we saw back in chapter 1, when Jesus came to John. And they say, John, the, the guy to whom you bore witness... Again, we saw this in chapter 1 when John saw Jesus and and proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then later in chapter 1, verse 32, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John's disciples are coming up and they're identifying that they're talking about Jesus. That guy that came when we were over near Jordan and that guy that you bore witness and you talked about. Okay, that guy, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. Now, everything that these disciples say is true with maybe just a little bit of exaggeration at the end. But everything they say is a true statement. He was with you across the Jordan. You did bear witness to him. He is baptizing. 
Now, the exaggeration that all are going to him, we know it's not the case that all are going to him because earlier the passage, uh, the, the setting of the paragraph says that people are still going to John to be baptized. So there are some who are still being baptized by John, but they're doing this hyperbole to say the majority are going to Jesus. Again, in chapter 4, where we'll be next week, talks about that, that the Jewish leaders see that Jesus is baptizing more people than John, and that becomes an issue. Now, all of these things are true statements. What's the big deal? What's really going on here? Do we think that John's disciples are just coming up to say, hey, John, you didn't know this information. Guess what? That guy that you, you bore witness to, guess what? He's baptizing too. Isn't this great? That's not their impression. We know that's not their impression because of what John is going to say to them soon. John's disciples are actually pretty upset. They are saying, hey, hey John, you remember that guy who came to you? And how you really set him up by saying all that nice stuff about him. You know when you used your, your testimony and all of your influence to set him up? Yet yeah, that guy, he, he's kind of coming on our turf now. He's kind of starting to do our thing. This, this is our thing, John. You're called John the Baptist. It's not Jesus the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. What gives? What is he doing? Why is he doing our thing? This needs to change. Now, this can seem, this reaction from them can seem ridiculous. But when you consider what these disciples did and and their perspective, it kind of starts to seem like something that we might do ourselves. See, John was a big deal. You have to put yourself in that time. Nowadays, people can become famous instantly. A a person's message can go viral within minutes. That wasn't the case back then. John is a legend in Israel. John is famous. People know who he is, even his name. They know what he does. He's John the Baptist. For John to get to that point, to become a household name where people from Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jews, are coming to question him, this is a ministry he's been doing for a long time. He's been following this role. These disciples who have been doing this journey with him, that's not been an easy job. John's not staying in five-star hotels. John's not a circuit speaker that's just going around and staying with the best— He's eating bugs. These disciples are like, John, we worked hard to get to this point. And then that guy that you used all of your influence to set up, he's now just going to take this from us? John's worked hard to build his ministry. And in his disciples' perspective, this guy is going to steal and cut them off. And he's being successful. People are starting to go to him instead of their rabbi, John. Can you imagine if you're in their perspective, looking at their perspective of why this would be so upsetting? But John is going to correct their wrong understanding. Look at what John says in verse 27. 
John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Here in verse 27, John is making a general statement with a specific application to what they're looking at. The general statement is that no one can receive anything unless God gives it. That passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What have you received that you were not given? And if you received it, why do you boast in it? What does John mean by this statement? John is letting his disciples know that if Jesus is receiving an abundance of followers, these followers are from God. God is choosing to bless Jesus' ministry in this way. John's statement applies specifically to Jesus. But the other application is for John himself. What are his disciples wanting John to do? John, you need to get some of those followers back. We need to do something. We need to either go confront Jesus, we need to do something, but we need to get some of these followers back. But John's saying, you can't have anything unless God gives it to you. Even if we try to go and get our follow, get followers back, even if we try to do all of those things, God's the one that's going to choose to give us what we need. We can't force this to happen. It's something that God is going to do. John's telling them this isn't a problem, and it's not something we can change. If Jesus has many followers, that's from God. But even if Jesus wasn't around, John would be telling them we could not humanly fabricate a successful ministry unless God chose to bless us in that way. Now, this statement has a lot of applications for us personally and for our church. We need to realize where growth comes from. Colossians 2 19, it says, um, it's speaking of the, of the one who is puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. I already mentioned 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who, uh, what do you receive? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We must realize, like John realizes, that any growth, any blessing that we would receive must come from God. Now, when we misunderstand that, it leads to things like humanly trying to fabricate success. Where we think, no, we, we can do this. John, we, we need to do something. We need to start making waves so our ministry can get back to the place of preeminence. We need to get back up to the top. But John knows you can't humanly fabricate that. The growth comes from God. It also can lead to ridiculous attempts of manipulation. We think we can force God to make us successful. We can twist his arm into giving us the role we want. John, you're the guy. 
You, you need to go back to being the guy. Do whatever's necessary. You know, let's, let's talk to God about this. Let's make this happen. We think that, don't we? We think that we can manipulate God into giving us the role that we want. You can't. You can never manipulate God. You can disobey God to get the role you want, but you can't manipulate God to get the role that you want. How does that apply to us and our church? We want to see growth. We want to see God bless this church mightily. But we must understand that all of that comes from God. Our role is to be like John and be faithful. God brings the results. The growth comes from him. Our job is to be faithful in our role. The other thing, though, is that we often misunderstand our role and grow discouraged. We look at these results and we, and we grow discouraged, but we, we must remember the truth of James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights and who, in, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We need to joyfully accept whatever God gives us. Accept it. Don't grow discouraged because you see that someone else, that God has chosen to bless them in a different way. Accept what he is giving you. The problem is we don't always just grow discouraged. We often grow jealous. This is the one that hits closest to home for me. What is the problem that the, the disciples of John are facing? They're jealous. They're seeing everything that's happening to Jesus, and they want that. That's what we had. I see this all the time in ministry. How often do we throw other ministries under the bus because they don't do things like us and maybe are having a little bit more what we would call success? Have you ever noticed, though, when we do that, we never do it with the guys who are smaller than us? It's always to the guy that's bigger than us. Maybe sometimes we might say something about a smaller church, but, but most of the time, if you get with other Christians, or specifically if you get together with other pastors, you're going to talk about, oh, yeah, well, that church, I really don't agree with their methodology. I, I, like some of the ecclesiology, I don't know, man. It, it just doesn't seem right. Almost all, always when those conversations happen, it's always about a church that's bigger than you, more well-known than you, or all of these other things. What is that demonstrating? Is that because we have a zeal for the house of God, which we should? Or is it jealousy? We want to chop them down, let them decrease, so that maybe we could increase. Now, now let me make this clear. I'm not talking about that we shouldn't call out heresy. We should. When, or, or hypocrisy. See, when, when both... John and Jesus deal with religious leaders, and both of them call those religious leaders out. John calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs that are dead on the inside. John and Jesus do not have a problem calling out hypocrisy and heresy. But what you see in Scripture is this desire to lift others up much more. 
Paul in Philippians uh, 1.18 talks about, hey, there are these other people that are preaching the gospel and they're trying to use it as a tool against me to hurt me. I don't care. If the gospel's being preached, I'm thrilled about it. That's something that we need to start understanding more. That's why we pray for other churches in our area. We want to be joyous about what God is doing in other places. The results come from God. We are called to be faithful. Do what we are doing, but don't look at someone else that they're doing something and say, ah, they've got to be doing something wrong. Because if if God's giving them that type of blessing and and he's not giving it to us, it must be because they're doing something wrong. I'm not really sure how that logically makes sense. Now, can we, at times, if someone talks about, hey, why don't you do it this way? Is it okay for us to have a philosophy of why we do things? Yes. But be very slow before you start criticizing other ministries that are gospel-centered ministries. They might do things different. It's okay that you have a different preference. But if it's not heresy, if it's not hypocrisy, don't cast them out. We must rejoice in what God has given Now, after John has laid out this general statement that it is God's sovereignty that determines the results, he now moves into why it is good that more are following Jesus. It's not just something that God decided. There's a reason God decided this. It's a good thing. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is not jealous of Jesus. John rejoices that Jesus is receiving what is right. Why? Because John understands his role. Look what he says. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. John knows who he is and who he isn't. John wants Jesus to increase and for him to decrease because he knows Jesus is the Savior and John is not. There's two things specifically that here that I love about John the Baptist. The first is that he's always quick to testify and bear witness and point to Jesus. My, my dad has a phrase that he use about, uses for John the Baptist that I, I think just really um, illustrates that. John the Baptist, from the womb to the tomb, pointed to Jesus. When, when Mary comes and is with Elizabeth, John leaps in the womb and he shows his mother, he shows Elizabeth who was in Mary. He's pointing to Jesus. All the way until his death, where he's beheaded, John pointed to Jesus. John was always quick to testify, to bear witness to who Jesus was. But the other thing that I love about John is he was also equally quick to point out that he was not the Savior. He being John himself. John was quick to say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. He pointed people to Jesus, never to himself. Now, if anyone had more right to point people to himself, it would have been John. John was the promised person at the end of the Old Testament that there is one coming in the spirit of Elijah. 
Jesus himself said about John that among women, women, there is no one who has arisen who is greater than the John the Baptist. But even though John himself called John the best man, John was always quick to say, there's a better man. Jesus said, John's the best man. And John took that opportunity to always say, and there's an even better man. That's what we need to do. We must point people to Jesus. The temptation for us, when we are given these words that lead to eternal life, when we have this truth that can cure the sick, to think that we might be Savior with a little s. God's the Savior, but I'm part of it. I'm doing something too. I'm, I'm part of this process. John never does that. John always points to Jesus. Jesus must increase and I must decrease because he is the Savior and I am not. John illustrates this understanding of his role by talking about this wedding. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Who has the bride? Jesus does. In the, in the Bible, both Israel and the, troth, uh, and the church in both the New Testament and Old Testament are described as a bride. John is telling his disciples, it is good that the bride is with the bridegroom, for Jesus is the bridegroom. John isn't willing to seduce the bride from the bridegroom. What do the disciples want? Hey, John, bring, bring some people back to us. Let's get this ministry going. John's like, no, I'm not the bridegroom. The bride is where it's supposed to be. The people are where they are meant to be. They are with the bridegroom. The only way for the bride to be with the friend of the bridegroom would be if the friend were to seduce the bride away. But John knows that is an abomination. That is not his role. His role is to be the friend, uh, friend to Jesus. And John rejoices in his role. He continues, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John gives us something to strive for. John is not just willing to submit his role to Christ and say, well, if this is what I've got to do, then I'll just do it. No, John is overjoyed in his submission. John is thrilled because he hears the voice of his friend. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is telling his disciples, this is how it's supposed to be. It's right for the bride to be with the bridegroom. My joy is complete because this has been my role. My role has always been to glorify God. My role has always been to point to Jesus. I was sent to prepare a way for the king. This is my job. John finishes with this beautiful statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the role of every Christian. We were made to glorify God. We are called to make much of him. Jesus must increase and I must decrease because he is the Savior and I am not. How that truth applies looks different for each person. 
In John's specific case, that meant that his ministry, his public role decreased. It's okay that people aren't coming to me like they used to. That's fine. Because now his ministry is increasing. This is good. John didn't see his role as decreasing. John saw that he was continuing to complete his role. His role had always been the same. The hard thing is for us in these applications for this is that we must submit in every way to Christ's calling. John says he must increase, but I must decrease. Here's the question. Are we willing to decrease in order for Christ to increase? Are we willing to submit our plans, our desires, our dreams in order to make much of Jesus? See, I think all of us are willing for Christ to increase. That sounds like a great thing. Let Jesus increase. That's not our problem. We're fine with Jesus increasing, but we would kind of like to increase with him while that happens. Let's ride the elevator up. Let's all increase. Jesus, you increase and I'll go with you. Let's do this together. It's not what John's saying. He must increase. I must decrease. The things that I see as my roles, the things that are my dreams, my desires, those must decrease. My passion is for him to increase. The other application, though, for that is to understand that your roles throughout your life are going to change. See, when we look at John the Baptist, throughout the Gospel of John, we've already seen his roles go through many iterations. He begins as being the one who is sent, pointing ahead. He didn't know yet who this was going to be. He was pointing ahead. The king is returning. I'm, this is my message. He had done that message. He had fulfilled that role faithfully because God had given it to him. Until one day, this man comes past and that role switches completely. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's ministry is completely different now. He's no longer talking about this king who might come, who will be coming. Now he's pointing to Jesus. Not only that, though, his role as a teacher changes because he starts sending his disciples to Jesus. He tells his disciples, behold the Lamb of God, and his disciples leave him, some of them. John's ministry of baptism, this is what he did. In our passage here, it's changing. Instead of everyone coming to him, they're coming to Jesus. John's role has changed. In the eyes of humanity, in the eyes of his disciples, his roles are becoming less and less important. But John doesn't see that. John says, no, my role has always been the same. He, here's the application for you. Be willing to change your roles, lowercase r, in order to accomplish your role, capital R. Your role is to glorify God. How God calls you to accomplish that role is going to look different. There will be times where maybe it's something big and what the world sees as important. 
and you can do that thing. And then other times, it might be the role of changing diapers in a nursery. And we can't look at those and say, oh, well, that's, 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 no, we can't do that. No, your role is always the same. Look at John the Baptist. He was willing to change how he accomplished that role in many ways. But the main purpose always stayed the same. Jesus must increase and I must decrease because he is the Savior and I am not. Now let me be clear. This is incredibly difficult. It is incredibly hard to submit our roles to Christ the way that John the Baptist did. But our passage doesn't end here. We have seen what John did. Now we will look at why he did it. Why should we submit our role to Christ? Why should Christ increase and we decrease? Our final paragraph gives us the support for why we submit to Christ. Let's look at the final paragraph and the support there. Here's the first reason we should submit our role to Christ. Because of the preeminence of Christ's position. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. And speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Why do we submit our role? Because Jesus is above everything. His position is preeminent. We are from the earth. Now John, when he talks about he who is from the earth... He's not talking about that in a negative way. It's just the reality. Sometimes when John talks about it, he'll use the word world to talk about the sin of the world. But when he's talking about the earth here, he's just talking about reality. Who is of the earth? All of us. John the Baptist is of the earth. But Jesus is the only one from heaven. He is above us. His position is preeminent. This is where the gospel of John begins. John 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John the Baptist understood Christ's preeminence. He was willing to submit his roles, his wills, his desires to Christ because he knew that Christ's position was far beyond his own. Listen to what John said in chapter 1, verse 15. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Later in verse 26, John the Baptist again says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John has no issue submitting his role to Christ because he understood that Christ's position was preeminent. Christ was above all. The second reason we submit our role, though, is because of the truth of Christ's tidings. The truth of what the message Jesus brings is. Look at verse 22. He, being Jesus, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. The tidings Jesus brings are true. His message is founded on what he has seen and heard. Jesus is not making it up as he goes. 
But there's a problem. No one receives his testimony. The response to Jesus' message has been a theme for the author, John, throughout the gospel. In the prologue, he told us this would happen. That Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, this is not showing that the message of Jesus wasn't true. That's not why this is here. What it's showing is our condition, that we're lost, that we do not receive the truth, that we cannot recognize it. That was the problem that Nicodemus had. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You have not received the Spirit. You have not received my testimony. On the other hand, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. This isn't saying that we get to determine that God is true, that we get to do that. What it's saying is that when we receive his testimony, we become a witness that we believe what God has said. This is true. I'm going to follow this path. I believe it's true. I'm telling everyone else, look, this is what I agree with. This is the way that I am going. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus speaks the words of God. What I love about this verse is that, we, is that the truth of the tidings, the, the message that comes, is revealed. It is a work of the Holy Trinity. God sends Jesus. Jesus speaks the words of God, for Jesus has the Spirit without measure. John knows this. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist knows that the message that Jesus brings, these true tidings, are coming through the Trinity. It's true. John submits his role because he has received the true tidings. He sets his seal that God is true. The third support for why we submit is because of the extent of Christ's authority. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus alone is given this authority. All things belong to him. All things have been given to him. His authority is absolute. Again, John the Baptist knows this. He knows that the Father is the one who gives all things. We saw this in verse 17. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John the Baptist submits his role to Christ because Christ's authority is absolute. The final support, though, for why we submit is because of the result of our response. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is the promise that John the Baptist believed. He received the testimony of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. Then he chose to respond in belief that Jesus alone is our salvation. The result is eternal life. Look what it says. Whoever believes has eternal life. But that's not the only potential result. 
Because the verse also goes on to say, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What's fascinating here is that instead of saying whoever does not believe, it says whoever does not obey. We see here that faith is linked with conduct. Now please understand me. I am not saying we are saved by works. But to be saved is to obey God's call. It is to make a response to that. Beyond that, once saved, we are called to obey God and follow his command in all things as evidence of our internal transformation. But those who do not obey the Son, those who do not believe, they do not receive life. Their death and separation remains. And this last statement is one of the most terrifying statements in all of the Bible. The wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't say those who refuse will then receive wrath. It says the wrath of God remains. It's already there. This goes back to what we talked about last week. We are children of wrath. We are in darkness. We, the only thing we deserve is God's wrath. And our only hope is God's salvation. But if we receive God's wrath-absorbing sacrifice, which was Jesus on the cross, where Jesus placed himself, he who did not have God's wrath, put himself in the position to absorb God's wrath. If we refuse that gift, then the wrath of God remains. Why does John submit his role? Because he knows the result of our response, not only the positive, but also the negative. John received life in Christ. He knows there are those who, but he knows that there are those who remain in wrath. John is willing to submit because of what he has received, but John is also submitting because he knows what everyone else needs. He's pointing people to Jesus because that is their only hope. Could you imagine if John went around and preached himself as the Savior, then all of those people would remain in wrath because there is only one salvation. There is only one way. Jesus must increase and I must decrease because he is the Savior and I am not. What role are you playing? Are you the best man Are you the best woman? Are you overjoyed in making everyone rejoice in the groom? Are you pointing people to Jesus? Are we fulfilling our role? Or are we seducing the bride? Are we distracting the world from their only Savior? Are we willing to decrease in order that Christ might increase? Are we willing to do any role that God calls us to so long as it accomplishes our main goal of glorifying God? Do we understand the preeminence of his position? He is above all. Do we receive the truth of his tidings? In him are the words of eternal life. Do we accept his absolute authority that all things belong to him? Do we believe the result of our response? Not only that we receive life, but that the world remains in wrath. Do not present yourself as Savior. They need us to point them to Jesus. We must set our seal that God is true. They need salvation that is only found in him. We have a role to play. Let us be the friend of the groom 
Let us glorify the groom in every way, no matter what that looks like, so that Jesus can increase and we decrease because he is the Savior and we are not.